Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 3. This is a continuation of last week's message. Romans chapter 3. And I just want to put in another plug for this, the Essential Church movie. Uh, As it was for probably the churches throughout the world and certainly for this local body, the pandemic really put us through a first dose of what we're going to stand for and not stand for in terms of our standing in Christ. Right. And so it was quite a time for many churches and this one included as to how we were going to respond. And the essential church is is kind of bringing all that back into focus. We don't want to just move on and be, yay, the pandemic's passed. It's like, no, we need to learn. If we didn't learn the first time through, we need to learn now how we're going to live for Christ and how we're going to stand for Christ and how we're going to be up against opposition that's going to come from the world. And it's often going to come even through governments. In fact, much of the persecution has come through governments of the world. Uh, We're thankful for government when government does exactly what it's supposed to do. But when it gets off track and starts to be used as a as a tool to to oppress and suppress the church, well, then then it gets difficult. And this kind of brings all that back into focus so that we can learn from it. So I encourage you to set this night aside and to be able to watch this together and even to remember some of the things that the Lord has brought us through. Well, I want to I tell you an embarrassing story from my, my youth. I would gladly tell an embarrassing story from your youth, but I, I don't know too many of them, and you probably wouldn't appreciate it if I did. So I'm left really with just using illustration, uh, you know, examples from my own youthful foolishness to illustrate things. So I was 16 years old. I had just been given permission by the state of Washington to drive a car. And it was about 8 p.m. and I was driving home from, I can't remember now where, uh, with a couple of friends in the car. And I was driving on a main street in my neighborhood in Spokane, Washington. And this main stretch of road had about a quarter mile downhill slope. And For reasons known only to the mind of 16-year-old boys, I decided to see how fast I could get my 1981 Dodge Omni going down this hill. And I was amazed that in such a short distance, I was able to get going twice the posted speed limit. And the police officer that I passed at the bottom of the hill wasn't so pleased with my little experiment, and he gave me a piece of paper that said, I need to go talk about this experiment with a judge. So I showed up in court. My case was called. I tremblingly stood before the judge who asked me if I had an explanation for my actions. So instead of just admitting that I had demonstrated poor judgment, and I was driving recklessly, I proceeded to give him what must have been one of the lamest excuses he had ever heard. This is what I told him. I said, this is the part that's embarrassing, because you guys are going to remember this probably more than my sermon today. I said that I had just come from a car wash, (laughs) and that my shoes were soaking wet, and the extra weight of my shoes must have caused me to press on the gas pedal harder than I realized. And so I was going faster than I realized. Never mind that little instrument on the dashboard that says how fast you're actually going. I didn't realize it. 
So perhaps the judge was having a good day. Maybe he was just tickled at how lame my excuse was. Or maybe he was just willing to give a foolish 16-year-old who was willing to show up in his courtroom a chance to learn from a stupid mistake. I'll never know. He let me off with a warning. I couldn't believe it. I had gotten away with flagrantly breaking the law. And I say flagrantly because you know if you go twice the speed limit, you can have the book thrown at you. When it comes to our guilt, it's part of human nature to attempt to offer an excuse that we hope will be acceptable. To try to find some legal loophole to suggest that the law in some way doesn't apply to us. And while such efforts, they may work when the judge is a sinful human being like yourself, there's not going to be any leniency when the judge is Almighty God, whose awesome and majestic nature is expressed by His extreme holiness. The Bible describes God as having eyes too pure, to approve evil. And he cannot look on wickedness with favor. God is too holy to ever look favorably or approvingly upon anyone's sin, regardless of how big or how small that sin may be in our eyes. He will not overlook sin because he cannot. The wages of sin must be paid. This is what we saw last week, if you were here. In this section of Romans, Romans chapter 3, Paul is making his case that all the world are under God's justice because all the world are sinners who fall short of giving God the glory that He is due. And apart from Christ, man's sinfulness is pervasive. Our corrupt actions, they're a result of our corrupt minds and our corrupt desires. We speak Hurtful words. We do harmful things. We are haughty in our ways. And as a result, man's situation, apart from Christ, because of our pervasive sinfulness, it is precarious. All the world is in big trouble because all the world is guilty of breaking God's righteous law. The law of the God who created us. The law of the God who has appointed a day when all men will be accountable before Him and stand before His judgment seat. And so when we try to make our excuses, when we try to plead our exemptions, God's law just simply shuts your mouth. That's the purpose for which God has given His law, to show us the seriousness of our situation before Him. Paul sums it up this way, if you look down in chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, God's law exposes you for who you really are. You are a sinner without excuse. And God in His holiness, He will hold you accountable and He will give to everyone the punishment sin deserves. And that punishment, the Bible says, it goes beyond physical death. It is eternal suffering. And so, we're talking about the eternal well-being 
of your soul. And so I hope that you'll give me your, your full attention this morning. Could there be any worse news than knowing that there will be no escaping the righteous judgment of God who knows the full extent of all your unrighteousness? Every wicked deed, every wicked word, thought, desire. So what are we to do? Is there any hope for us to escape the condemnation of God for our unrighteousness? You know what some people do? They just put it off and think about it another day. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. If that's one of you people here this morning, if that's been your approach, that certainly was my approach when I was 16 years old. And God wants you to take this time to think about this. Is there any way to gain the righteousness that we need to get to heaven? See, amid this bad news, there is good news. And it's called the gospel. And the reason it's good news is because Paul tells us back at the start of Romans, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, he says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, the good news of the gospel is that God's very own righteousness is revealed in it for this reason. So that he can offer it to everyone who believes. We pick this morning, we pick up this morning where we left off last week at Romans 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 21. Martin Luther, a theologian of old. He calls this passage, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle, the the letter here to the Romans, and, he says, of the whole Bible. Biblical scholar Leon Morris, he calls it, quote, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of the previous uh, century from Britain, he calls this passage the center of the Bible. In this passage, Martin Luther again, he said, this is the heart of the Reformation. This passage contains the central truth he believed the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted. And that Roman Catholics and Protestants still disagree about to this day. Well, let's read it together. Follow along with me as I begin in verse 21 and read down to verse 26. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Heavenly Father, as your people, we gather here together today in the hopes of hearing your voice and the hopes of seeing all the more glorious our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. The main subject of this passage, as well as really the whole book of Romans, is found in verse 24. In a word, it's the word justified. 
justified. This is the word that Luther said launched the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day taught that justification was a process whereby God made you into a righteous person by infusing his righteousness into you by means of the sacraments, of which there are are seven in the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, marriage, confession, anointing of the sick and holy orders. Over your lifetime, through observing the sacraments and confession and doing good deeds, they would they taught that you would become righteous a righteous enough person that God would eventually declare you justified. And if by the time you died you weren't righteous enough, which was probably just about everybody, then you'd go to purgatory where your sin would be purged through fire, through suffering. So justification, here's the key point, justification, they taught, was a process. But it was Luther who pointed out that it's not what the word justified means in the Bible. In the Bible, justification is not a process of you becoming more and more holy. It's true that God's Spirit uses His word to progressively change our desires to be more and more like His, but that process is not what the Bible calls Justification. The word the Bible uses of that process is sanctification. When justification is confused with sanctification, the gospel ends up getting distorted. That's a problem. Simply put, justification is the act of God whereby God declares a sinner to be righteous. It's not a process whereby, whereby we become increasingly righteous. It is a pronouncement that declares us righteous in God's sight. In short, justification means that we are declared righteous, while sanctification means growing in righteousness. Justification in the Bible, it doesn't refer to the transformation of the heart. Again, that is sanctification. Justification, it is about having a status of righteousness, even though you are not righteous, practically speaking. So this is a legal issue. It's a legal declaration. And you and I, we get to heaven not because, not because any of us are, are righteous. We are still sinners. The only reason a person enters heaven is Because God has legally declared that person to be righteous, not because they are actually righteous. In justification, God's righteousness is not infused to us, or in us, I should say. It's not infused into us, His righteousness. It is imputed, credited to us. Another way to distinguish these two acts of God is that sanctification is an act of God in us. Justification is an act of God with respect to us. And the difference between sanctification and justification, it's like the difference between a surgeon and a judge. The surgeon, when he removes some cancerous growth, he does something in us. That's not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are 
innocent, then the judge declares accordingly. For example, if I get accused of a crime and I'm brought into a court and a jury decides I'm innocent of all charges and the judge declared me declares me not guilty, in that moment I am justified. I am cleared of guilt. I, the judge doesn't give me some seven-step program at that moment in order to become innocent. He declares me innocent. And I can walk out of that courtroom a free man in the eyes of the law. And the same is true in salvation. The moment the sinner believes in Christ, Christ's own righteousness is credited, imputed to him. And upon that basis, the basis of the righteousness of Christ attributed to him, upon that basis, God declares the sinner to be justified, not guilty. Luther, he came up with a, a Latin phrase to express this. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and sinners. We're still sinners under God's scrutiny. But by imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we are declared and rightly considered righteous before him. And you're thinking, wait, is this right? Is this biblical? Well, praise God, it is, right? It's how God has been operating from the very beginning. In fact, the sacrificial system that God had Moses institute for the nation of Israel, it pictured this very idea. When each family brought their perfect lamb to be sacrificed, they would lay their hands on the head of the lamb. And in that, and in that moment, God justified them. The lamb was held responsible for their sin before God. And we know what happened to that lamb. He was sacrificed for them. And those people who laid their hands on the head of that lamb, they walked out free. God instituted the sacrificial system to picture what Jesus would come and actually do. He would fulfill this picture. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, remember what he said? He declared, Behold, the Lamb of God. And on the cross, the sins of God's people, they were laid on Jesus' head. So sinners like you and me could go free. Quoting again from Martin Luther, he says this, quote, All the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most, our, our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and said to Him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul that persecutor, blasphemer, cruel oppressor. You will become David that adulterer. You will become Adam that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. End quote. Another pastor put it this way. He said, quote, Jesus would become the husband who has abused his family the immoral adulterer who wrecked someone else's marriage, the drug addict, the hypocrite living a double life, the proud, the selfish, the apathetic. He became those things and died for them so that we could be innocent of them. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. So that when I lay my hand of faith on him, my sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes Mine. Am I righteous in myself? No. 
I am a sinner through and through. God, though, declares me righteous because Christ's righteousness has been given to me. And that, that is glorious. That is the gospel. See, the doctrine of justification is perhaps the most important doctrine in the Christian life. While all doctrine is important, this one, this one is about how a sinner such as I am can stand before a righteous God and be allowed into his heaven. This passage will also explain how God can do this. How can God let a sinner into heaven without impugning his own righteousness? Think about it. What what do we call a judge who declares a guilty person innocent? We call that judge bad. We call him corrupt. And if a human judge can't get away with that, how can God do it? And See, that's one of the critical questions that Paul's going to answer for us in this passage. The title of my sermon this morning is God's Perfect Righteousness. And I have the great joy of showing to you from this passage that because of the cross, it is possible for God to pardon sinners without impugning His perfect righteousness. Because of the cross, it's possible for God to pardon sinners without impugning His perfect righteousness. And I have three glorious truths for you this morning about God's perfect righteousness. God's righteousness has been proclaimed, it is possible, and it was upheld. And so, with verse 20, the judge's gavel drops with the words, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And so if you're reading Paul's words here for the first time, this is where you stop and say, I'm really thankful that Paul doesn't stop there. If he did, you would have no hope. We would have no hope. The next two words in verse 21 give you a clue of the hopes that to come. Verse 21 begins with, but now. See, because of your unrighteousness, there's no way that you can be justified before God. But there is right now a righteousness that's available to you. It's not a righteousness that is from you. It's actually from outside of you. And so the first glorious truth is that God's righteousness has been proclaimed. God's righteousness has been proclaimed. And there's two important things that we need to know about this righteousness. First, this is a righteousness from God. He says in verse 21, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So if you were to have any hope of not being condemned when you stand before God, you need to be righteous. The only problem, as Paul has so thoroughly shown us in all the verses leading up to this verse, is that all of us, all mankind, apart from Christ, is unrighteous. Just look back, for example, at verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. So you lack the righteousness that you desperately need. Where are you going to get it, though? And if you're thinking, well, I'll just, I'll just start obeying God. I'll do what he says. Well, then you're fooling yourself. Paul has already shown us how this is impossible, let alone the fact that you've been living your life denying, disobeying, 
discounting God in all these several ways. You're already unrighteous. So just the idea, I'll just start obeying God now. As if you can dismiss all the other multitudes of sins that have already been committed up to this point. Many times by our estimation, we just give ourselves a passing grade in in our obedience to God. We say, well, I'll just try to do more good than bad then. I'll just, I'll see if I can tip the scales with the rest of my life. But the problem is, is that our standard is different from God's standard. God's standard is perfection. And the truth is that we will never become, we will never be declared righteous by our own efforts to obey God. In fact, the opposite is true. God's commands in Scripture, they don't give us this opportunity to show how good we are. They just, they reveal just how disobedient and unrighteous we are. The law says not to do something. So what do we do? That, whatever it is, we do it anyway. God commands us to do something. But we refuse. And this is what our sinful nature leads every single one of us to do. God did not give the law to be an avenue for righteousness. But he says in verse 19, but that the world, verse 19, the world may become accountable to God. Because, verse 20, through the law, through these commands, comes the knowledge of sin. What about through me participating in sacraments or ceremonies. Paul is clear. Verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Verse 21. Apart from the law, this happens. In other words, apart from your efforts. This righteousness that Paul is speaking of, it cannot come by your efforts. Well, so where am I to get it? Wouldn't it be great if you could just you could just have God's own righteousness. Paul is basically saying you can. There is a righteousness available to you that has nothing to do with you, which is exactly what you need. In fact, God is offering you his own perfect righteousness. When Paul says the righteousness of God in verse 21, he means the righteousness from God. Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness, meaning it is a righteousness other than your own. It's alien to you. But how does God's righteousness become yours? Well, we've already established it has nothing to do with you earning it through your works of obedience or anything like that. And we'll answer this important question here in just a moment. But what I want you to see here is that at the core of justification, it is not about you. Your hope of justification is not about your own merits. It's not about your own accomplishments. It's not about your own faithfulness or your own participation. It is about God and it is about his righteousness becoming yours by means other than what you do. There's one thing, other thing about this uh, righteousness that Paul says um, about it becoming yours, namely that this righteousness, secondly, was promised by God. This righteousness was promised by God. He says the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. ESV, that version, I think, makes this a little clearer by saying the law and the prophets bear witness to it, to this righteousness. In other words, this idea that you can be saved by a righteousness from outside of you 
It's not a new idea. In fact, it's a very old idea. Paul isn't introducing anything new here. He's only restating what the Old Testament scriptures have been proclaiming for several millennia. What you see throughout the Old Testament, it's not a promise that the law will make you a righteous person before God. What you see promised is that God will save his people. He's going to provide a way for them to be made righteous in his sight. He'll send a servant, a deliverer, who will redeem and save a people for himself. And this is the very gospel that Paul says he has been set apart by God to preach. Again, you can go back to the beginning of this letter and you see this same phrase being referred to his apostleship. In verse 1 he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son. Jump down to verse 17 of chapter 1. He says, for in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is not new. It's very old, in fact. Ever since the fall of man into sin, God has been testifying through the law, through his prophets, that he would save his people. And the salvation, Paul says, it concerns his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through him that God's very own righteousness is revealed. It's manifested. manifested. It is made known. God's righteousness, which every one of us here needs, is proclaimed. Where? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, yes, but what we need to know is this. Is God's righteousness possible for us? Can it indeed become ours? And the answer to that question, Paul says, is a resounding yes. The second glorious truth about God's righteousness is that it's possible. Meaning, it's possible for sinners like you and me to be declared righteous in God's sight. Since I have no righteousness of my own, it must come from outside of me. Paul says, it is in fact God's very own righteousness. But the important question is, how do I gain this righteousness from God? That's the question that Paul now sets about to answer. He begins by saying, I can tell you how this righteousness doesn't come. It doesn't come by the law. Look again at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This righteousness is possible, but not by the law. You can't get this righteous status by your efforts at law-keeping or anything else that comes from your own efforts. This righteousness of God, which is possible for believers, it is entirely apart from your obedience. Not just to God's own revealed law, which the Jews, by the way, they sought to obey, but to any law. God's righteousness is in no way based on human achievement, on anything that man can do in his own power. The Old Testament scriptures, they never taught that salvation was possible by obedience to God's law, much less by obedience to the many man-made laws and traditions that have been devised by the rabbis and the elders during the several hundred years before Christ. But see, that didn't stop the Jews of Jesus' day or Paul's day from placing their trust in their law-keeping efforts. Paul, even before his conversion in um, is a perfect example of, a, of the legalistic mindset 
held by these religious Jews. Paul, then even after his conversion, he was constantly fighting against the efforts of these Jews. Many Jews took on the name of Christ, but they were attempting to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in him alone. They were adding legalistic requirements from the Old Testament, things like circumcision, things like obeying Sabbath. Right? You had to do the, you're a Christian. In other words, you've got to become a Jew first to become a Christian. Get circumcised and believe in Jesus. Obey the Old Testament Sabbath laws and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And he had to remind the Galatian Christians, Paul did. He said, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. See, Paul's goal up to this point in in his letter to the Romans, it has been to show that we have no righteousness of our own. We are sinners through and through. And God gave the Old Testament law as a standard of righteousness that could never be achieved by human effort. Our efforts in keeping the law, they don't gain us righteousness. They expose our unrighteousness, which brings about God's wrath. And this is why the non-Christian finds the gospel so offensive. It says you, you can't please God on your own terms. You can't please God by your own efforts. Man doesn't want to be told that his efforts are worthless before God. That's the extent of our sinfulness right there. Right? Think about the world's view of religion. Think about what you hear preached to you through all the entertainment that you take in and all the things that you hear from people in the world on, on these, uh, that have these uh, megaphones in the forms of podcasts and articles and videos and television shows and movies. They're saying the power is in you. The solution is in you. Looking deep inside you for the answer. You are enough. You can save yourself. Love yourself. Believe in yourself. God will accept you. But Paul is making something else clear here. He says, you're not the solution. You're the problem. This righteousness is not possible by the law or any of your efforts. So how is it possible then? What's the instrument through which the righteousness of God can be imparted to us? The Roman Catholic Church says the righteousness that I need, it comes through my cooperation with God to achieve and merit justification by personal works, which include my participation in the sacraments. And you know, I have no bone to pick with Roman Catholics. My mother-in-law is Roman Catholic. She lives with us. Many times she's here. She hears us saying these things. So... They are said in love. And if you are here this morning and, and, and you are Roman Catholic and these things are foreign to you, maybe it's because like many Roman Catholics, they don't even understand what their church is preaching. And what, at the heart of the difference between Protestant and Catholic is justification and how you are declared righteous in God's sight. And this is so severe so extreme that the Catholic Church says that anyone who believes in salvation through faith alone in Christ is anathema, cursed of God. So lest you think I got a bone to pick with Catholics, the Roman Catholic Church and its dogma has a bone to pick with Protestantism. This is the divide. How you are made righteous in God's sight. It's either by participation with God through sacraments or through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the, never the twain shall meet. There is, this is oil and water, folks. 
So it is out of love that I would say anything in, you know, to speaking of the truth from the scriptures. This is my basis. There are many Roman Catholics who love Christ. And there's many Roman Catholics who want to obey and follow Christ. But if they are trusting in their works, they need to repent and believe in Christ. And that is a statement of love. I hope you understand that. Especially if you're here this morning and you're offended by what I'm saying. I have no desire to offend you. If you're offended, it's because of what Christ is saying. That's what Paul is saying. My justification before God is not grounded exclusively in the work of Christ. If it's not there, then I don't have a righteousness before God because it's not possible by my own efforts. This righteousness that is possible, how is it possible? It's through faith alone. It's through faith alone. This is the second aspect of this righteousness that's possible. How? It's through faith alone. And Paul states this several times in this passage that we've, this section here of Romans. Faith and faith alone. It's how you attain the righteous status by which you are declared righteous before God. He says it in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then again, it's for all those who believe. Verse 25. It's a propitiation in his blood through faith. The ESV says it's to be received by faith. So again, faith is connected with this. Verse 26. Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, referring to our justification not being by works, but by a law of faith. He says it again in 28. He says it again in 30. And so I think Paul's trying to get something through to us here. The way you and I get this righteous status given to us is through the means, the instrument of faith. And if this righteous status is through faith alone, then it's very important that we understand how the Bible defines faith. The faith by which a person is saved is never just a belief that something is true. If that were the case, the demons would be saved, right? Because they believe that God is real. Faith, as evidenced in the Bible, is receiving something. It's embracing something. It's relying on something. It's trusting in something. And when you apply that faith to Jesus Christ, in as much as you look to God in Christ and embrace and trust Him, this righteousness is yours. It is a looking outside of yourself. Faith is not a feeling. Not an emotion. It's looking outside yourself to Christ and it's trusting in what He has done. Let me make two clarifications here. Just really quick. I'm not going to spend much time on this. First of all, we are saved regarding faith. We need this to be clarified. We're saved through faith. Not because of faith. It's not simply the fact that I have faith that I'm saved. We're saved through the instrument of faith. It's not the presence of faith in me that saves me. Faith is what connects me. It's the instrument through which Christ's righteousness is applied to me. So my faith, I'm not, I'm not saved because I have faith. I'm saved through faith. It's an instrument. Second distinction, we're saved through faith in Christ, not because of faith itself. The world lauds faith. You'll hear all kinds of flowery words about belief and faith from the world. But the moment that that faith is rested and rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ, well, that's where they draw the line. Faith is cool. Faith in God is even cool. Faith in yourself is really great. Faith in Jesus Christ is too exclusive. And yet, we are saved through faith in Christ alone, not just through the presence of faith itself. 
right? These are the two terms. That, out of this come the two terms of the, of, the, of the solas of the Reformation. First is sola fide. That's Latin for only faith. And second is sola Christus, only in Christ. This leads us then to the third and the final point related to God's righteousness. And this, this is really the most important point in this sermon. Because it answers a very important question related to justification. How could a holy God let a sinner, such as I am, into heaven? On what grounds can God declare a sinner to be righteous in his sight? Right. Have you ever stopped to ask that question before? We should ask this, because remember, as I pointed out, we'd never tolerate a judge who declared a guilty person innocent. Is it somehow okay for God to do it just because he wants to? Is it okay because, well, it's his job to save sinners, even even if he has to bend the rules a little bit? Has it ever occurred to you that in declaring you righteous... That God allowed his own righteousness to be in question? So how does God get away with declaring sinners to be righteous? In proclaiming his own righteousness and making righteousness possible through faith alone, we don't need to worry because thirdly, God's righteousness was upheld. He was just in doing this. He was righteous in what he did. So let's see how. See, as great a sinner as I am, the reason God can declare me righteous while upholding and not impugning his own righteousness is because of the work of Christ on the cross. That's why we sing about the cross all the time. Because that's where God's righteousness was displayed. God has accomplished something that allows Jesus to be a sinner even though he is not and allows you and I to be considered righteous, even though we are not. The switching of our status, right, from sinner to righteous, and Jesus' status from righteous to sinner, that is at the heart of the gospel. The reason that you can gain a righteousness that is not your own, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is <clears throat> it is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What he has done, and it can be understood in two parts. First, Christ fully bore God's justice on sin. And secondly, he fully gives his perfect righteousness to us. So why can God spare you the justice that you deserve as a sinner? Well, because first of all, Christ fully bore God's justice on sin. And Paul is speaking of Christ here. Look at verse 25. He says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So Christ's sacrifice, it was not something, it wasn't done in the temple, like behind closed doors or behind the curtain. It was done publicly and it was done on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And Paul is referring, of course, he's referring here to the cross on which he was crucified, where God allowed his son to be executed for all to see. But this was not simply the execution of a common criminal. He uses a word here that is not in our language, propitiation. 
This word relates to a sacrifice. It carries the idea of appeasement or satisfaction. Right? What I mean is not in our language. It's not in our vernacular. It's not something we talk about. So it, it refers to appeasement. It refers to satisfaction. In pagan religions, the God has to be appeased. Right? That's how you get good crops. That's how you keep the hurricanes from coming upon you. How do you appease? Well, the gods have to be appeased through offering gifts, offering sacrifices. Paul uses this word to speak not of man's efforts to satisfy God's justice. He speaks about God's own work of satisfying his own wrath. God displayed Christ, he says, as a propitiation, meaning this was God's doing. He offered the sacrifice that appeased his own wrath. Is that significant? Well, to illustrate just how significant it is, consider this. There's only one way that you or I, anybody in this room, anybody outside of this room, there is only one way that you or I can satisfy God's justice against our sin. Do you know what that one way is? Do you know? Wait, you're saying, wait, didn't you just say earlier that we can't, we don't have a righteousness by which we can please God? I thought there was no place that we can earn our way into heaven. But you're saying there's a way that I can satisfy God's justice against me? I certainly, I don't want to confuse anyone, right? So let me be very clear here. It is impossible for a sinner to be good enough for God to allow them to enter into heaven on their own merit. There is none righteous. However, there is a way by which God's wrath against the sinner is satisfied and divine justice is served. His righteousness upheld. See, the only payment a sinner can make that would satisfy God's justice is suffering forever in hell. That is it. The just punishment for sinning against the everlasting God who is infinitely holy is eternal punishment in eternal fire. But Paul is saying that Christ became a man so that he could offer himself as a sacrifice in your place. It was the offering of his own life that propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God against your sin. God has justifiable, righteous wrath against your sin. And on the cross, Jesus fully bore it in his own body and in your place. And instead of eternally pouring out his wrath on me in hell, Christ fully bore and fully satisfied God's wrath against me on the cross. And for the sinner, that's good news. And this is, this is amazing news. This is unbelievable news. God's wrath has been fully spent on Christ, and that means there's none left for me. There's several passages in Scripture where God's wrath is, is related to the imagery of a cup. Jeremiah speaks of the wine of God's wrath. He speaks of the cup of his anger. And then in Revelation 14, it comes together. He says, speaking of those who would worship the beast and receive his mark, he says, he says, this person will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. 
And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is the one who confirmed the connection between this imagery of the cup and what he was doing on the cross. Remember what he said in the garden? My father, if this is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Figuratively speaking, this is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was drinking down the contents of this dreaded cup. You deserved the cup of God's anger. You deserve to drink down the wine of God's wrath undiluted in full strength. And God, though, sent his son so that he could take this cup and drink it down all the way to the dregs. And that's what is taking place on the cross. He displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood, in his death, to demonstrate God's righteousness. Never let yourself think that God will wink at your sin. God only and always upholds his law. Sin must be punished. The wage of sin is death and it must be paid. The cross is proof for all time that God will never diminish his righteous standard, not even for his own son, who willingly took your place as a sinner. If he wouldn't diminish it for his son, he certainly won't diminish it for those who are in hell who rejected his son. And this offer that was freely given, freely offered, a pardon. See, the reason why God can declare a sinner righteous without impugning his own righteousness is because, first of all, Christ took your place and he fully bore God's justice on sin. But the other reason is because Christ fully gave his perfect righteousness to us. God, Christ fully gave his perfect righteousness to us. And the reason he displayed Christ as this public propitiation in verse 26, he says, was for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just. But not only that, because of the cross, God could also then be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This verse captures perfectly what Christ's death accomplished. The cross allows God to do two things at once. He can be just and punish all sin. And he can be the justifier, declaring sinners to be righteous, not because of their righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to them. Paul put it simply in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, God, he made him, Jesus, to be who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. Through the cross, God can uphold his holy standard and at the same time forgive our sins without compromising his own righteousness. Sins are punished and sinners are declared righteous at the same time. Can you see why God wants you to know this, Christian? Because you're going to continue to sin. And you're going to wonder in those times if God is angry with you. Your sin does grieve the Lord. But as for any wrath against you, 
Friends, Christ bore your sin. He bore it once and he bore it all. And because of Christ, you are secure in God's everlasting love. You will never pay. Our, our, our justice system even covers this. You can't be charged twice for the same crime. You see how our justice system is built on the gospel? You have a wedding and it displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. You walk into a courtroom and it's displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing. But for any here who have not yet received Christ, can you see also why God wants you to know this? Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I've gotten away with sin up until now. So, you know, I'll just take my chances. You haven't gotten away with sin. No one will get away with sin. The fact that God doesn't punish all sin immediately when you sin, that's not a sign of injustice. That's not a sign of indifference. That is God's patience. That is his loving grace. The word that Paul uses for it in verse 25, if you look there, it's right towards the end of the verse. It says the word he uses is forbearance. God is forbearing your high handed rebellion against him. Paul tells us that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Here's the way John MacArthur put it. He says, quote, because of God's justice, no sin will ever go unpunished. Yet because of his grace, no sin is beyond his forgiveness. See, God made a way where sin could be punished and sinners could be saved. And he sent his son into the world so that he could secure a pardon at the cost of his own life. And all you need to do is repent, turn from that sin and trust in him as your savior, as your Lord. And the promise of the gospel is that you will be forgiven and granted eternal life in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. But if after seeing his hand of mercy extended to you in this gospel message and you can slap it away, then there is only one place for you. And in that place, you will suffer forever the wrath of God that you justly deserve. Come to him today. Today is this day of salvation where this offer of grace is being made to you. Pardon at Christ's expense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made possible a righteousness that we could never, ever earn. Our sin has been exposed over and over again as we have disobeyed you. For the Christian, we can say thank you for the forgiveness that Christ has purchased for me. For the non-Christian, they can say, I put my trust in Christ. For I know I'm a sinner and I know what I deserve. But if Christ truly bore that sin for me, oh, let me receive him and what he's done for me. Oh, may you work, Spirit of God, to make this truth become alive in the hearts of those who don't know you this morning. And in those who do. May it cause them to burst forth with joy and gratitude and praise. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.